And it's good to be here with my friend and colleague, Mary Herman. Um, for several years now, I've admired Mary, who is so industrious and so devoted to ethical culture. But I think most of all, I appreciate that Mary, I think, through her heart and mind, truly understands what ethical culture is about and has dedicated herself so arduously to communicating that love uh, to the rest of you. Let me just say, um, I haven't been to Washington too often. I was here last year and then in years previous, a long time ago, and I always thought this was an overly serious and stodgy group until, <laughs> until that plastic exhibit, which has totally revolutionized my understanding uh, of the Washington Society, in fact, in a very positive direction. So there you go. It was not only a humorous, but humanizing moment. So there you go. Um, I, for many years, as Mary indicated in the introduction, have been committed as an activist to human rights and for the last 12 years have been a human rights academic, but remain an activist still. And I want to talk to you uh, this morning about a project which I believe is unique in the New York metropolitan area, and something I should say, and this is really the payoff of my message, something that is readily duplicable by the Washington Society here in Washington, D.C. So hopefully this morning I'll succeed with putting some ideas in your head, uh, particularly if you're looking for a new social justice project, which I think is most worthy. Um, perhaps you'll agree with me that we are at a xenophobic, xenophobic moment in American history. There are times when Americans collectively remember that we are a nation of immigrants and that our grandparents came from elsewhere. And then there are times when we choose to forget. I think we are at a time when we collectively have chosen to forget. Likewise, our national narrative is that the United States was founded as a haven from persecution. Think back to elementary school and the Puritans coming to Plymouth Rock, uh, escaping persecution, religious persecution and England, in England. And there are times when we for collectively forget that as well. This morning, I want to talk with you about our obligations to the stranger, especially the stranger who is persecuted and in dire need, who except for the vagaries of circumstance and fate could very well be one of us. Recognizing the special needs of the stranger has a long legacy, as does the ethical mandate to give refuge and protection to the stranger who is fleeing great danger. The most often repeated commandment in the Hebrew Bible, which in fact appears no fewer than 24 times in the Torah, is some variant of the following, quote, when you come into the land, do not oppress the stranger, for remember, you yourselves were slaves in the land of Egypt, end quote. In the Christian tradition, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan, someone who is not one of us, who is of a different tribe, and yet nevertheless goes out of his way to give comfort and go the extra mile to a stranger, someone who is estranged from him, whom he sees lying on the roadbed. He takes care of him, brings him to the inn, and ensures for, that his welfare uh, be taken care of into the future. 
Among the ancient Greeks, Zeus, the king of the gods, was also known as Zeus Xenios, that is Zeus, the guardian of strangers, recognizing that when people left their city-state in Greece and traveled abroad, they were no longer protected by the laws and customs of those people amongst whom they traveled and therefore had to invoke the protection of divine authority no less from, than from the king of the gods. When it came to giving sanctuary to the persecuted, the Bible cites the, quote, six cities of refuge, three on the east bank of the Jordan, three on the west bank of the Jordan, and the cities of refuge were places where if a person had committed manslaughter, he could flee to one of those cities and be held there until the appropriate authorities came to get him and he could be subject to some judicial due process as opposed to merely being the victim of vendetta killings, of payback and retribution. Okay, so you had cities of refuge. This idea of sanctuary was carried forward by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and you had indeed, not innumerable, but a large number of cathedrals, churches, and other holy sites to which a person could flee if they were in danger, and indeed they were held harmless. They were kept there out of the bounds of the uh, persecutors who were coming to get them. The modern concept of asylum is a political concept in the modern period which has grown out of the religious concept of sanctuary, which goes back to virtually time immemorial, and indeed we have this transition from sanctuary, which is religiously based exclusively, to something that becomes a political concept with the emergence of the modern national state in the 17th century. When you have the creation of the modern state, at that point you have indeed the state very often taking over the function as encoded in its laws uh, for sanctuary, which again is the secular uh, equivalent of asylum, which is the secular equivalent of sanctuary. I think it's not a stretch to say that our own ethical culture movement has in its own way carried forward this religiously expressed value, both philosophically and in action since its founding in the late 19th century. Ethical culture affirms the stranger philosophically, I think, in a twofold way. Ethical culture has at its center an abiding respect for the dignity of the person. Characteristically, it has pressed against narrow and parochial applications of that ideal, that ideal to express it universally. That is, ethical culture approaches the dignity of, of the humanity of all people, not exclusively those who are close to us and tied to us by bonds of love, caring, and friendship, but those who are at a distance, so to speak, whom we do not know, but with whom we sense we share a common destiny. In other words, we are committed to the well-being of the stranger and not exclusively to those of family, our friendship circles, our ethnic or religious group. Secondly, because of ethical culture's universal commitment to human dignity and recognizing that we live in a world in which that dignity is so gratuitously abused at every corner, ethical culture animated by a sturdy commitment to justice takes special interest in the oppressed, the downtrodden, the marginalized, and persecuted. Our social goal is to work to leverage justice for all, especially the downtrodden, so that the dignity of all will be upheld. 
Our personal goal, I might add, is to make our values more enduring in our own lives. And I contend that this can be done through meaning, meaningful human encounter. This uh, becomes, I think, providing help for the stranger is one way in which we can generate that human encounter in a profoundly meaningful way and thereby reinforce reciprocally our own preciously held values. Ethical culture's um, primary public dedication in its first half century was its commitment to redress the evils of the Industrial Revolution. In this regard, a disproportionate deployment of ethical culture's resources, its human resources and its financial resources, were focused on the condition of immigrants, many of whom were in fact coming to America by the millions, fleeing not only economic destitution, but political persecution as well. Indeed, the primary recipients of assistance in the early institutions created by ethical culture were, in fact, immigrants. If we're talking about the beneficiaries of the visiting nurse service, the working, working men's school, the settlement houses, model tenements on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York, ethical culture's overall commitment to the labor movement, and even one would argue our creation, our work in helping to create the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, which was born in part in response to the Palmer Raids, a xenophobic and fear-driven assault on immigrants that led to the deportation after World War I of more than 500 immigrants back to Europe, fearing that they were anarchists or other, indeed, malefactors on the American scene. When it came to those more severely and directly imperiled, in 1936, John Eliot, a leader of the New York Ethical Culture Society, went first to Berlin and then to Vienna to expedite the release of two ethical culture leaders of the then Vienna Ethical Society a man by the name of Wilhelm Borner and his colleague Walter Eckstein, who had been arrested by the Nazis. Uh, Eliot succeeded, in fact, in freeing those people, negotiating with the Nazis, winning their freedom, and bringing them back to the United States. While in Europe, Eliot had firsthand experience with the plight of refugees, and which led him to dedicate himself to those refugees who, in fact, had made it to the United States. A program was set up, and by 1940, 200 refugees were coming to the New York Society each day to learn English, while many more were receiving English language education in their homes. The New York Society also distributed clothing, engaged in job counseling, and ed educated the children of immigrants. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was very close to the New York Society, was among the notables who lent her support to this refugee effort right before the United States entered the war uh, in 1941. I would be remiss if I did not mention that in more recent decades, in fact, in the mid-1980s, my own Bergen Society, as Mary pointed out in the introdu introduction, declared itself a sanctuary for political refugees who were fleeing the civil war in El Salvador. As many of you probably remember, there was a national-wide movement based primarily in the Southwest, uh, in Southern California, Arizona, and other states in the Southwest. But it was truly a national movement. Uh, the Bergen Society at that time was one of only two congregations in the entire state of New Jersey to so declare itself a sanctuary. It took two years 
and at least two dozen meetings to leverage our middle-class congregation to a collective act of civil disobedience, placing ourselves between the Immigration Service and a winsome 17-year-old young man who escaped death in El Salvador and survived torture in his homeland. I believe, and I could be wrong about this, but I do believe that this was the only instance in the history of the ethical culture movement when an ethical society as a whole had engaged in an act of civil disobedience, okay? It was that we put ourselves on the far side of the law. The immigration services knew what we were doing. Uh, it was an elaborate effort. It was an interesting sort of exercise to spend a period of two years seeing if we could actually get a comfortable middle-class group of people to defy the law for the sake of a moral principle and the life of uh, trying to protect the life and well-being of a young person who was protected. Indeed, of those hundreds of thousands of people who fled the vicious Civil War uh, in El Salvador, which was, of course, staunchly um, supported by the Reagan administration, of those coming here claiming political asylum, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit, only 4% received it, which means those who were declined were deported and put on planes back to San Salvador, many indeed forfeiting their lives because the United States did not provide them appropriate protection. And it was that moral disgrace that actually was the stimulus for the creation of the sanctuary movement and our group uh, became uh, involved in that effort. Well, I'll return to the work of ethical culture later on and our contemporary instantiation of a sanctuary effort, but first I want to move on to the international scene and then particularly to discuss the plight of political asylum seekers, especially when they come to the United States in the current moment and the types of obstacles and problems that they confront when they are here. So this is sort of the moral background, the moral, legal, political background to our current effort to provide support for the stranger, uh, those indeed who are in the northern New Jersey and to some extent the broader New York area. After World War II, the international community faced the displacement of millions of refugees who were in refugee camps. Indeed, fully two years after the war concluded, there were still over 800,000 people languishing in, uh, in camps throughout Europe, in West Germany, in Austria, uh, in England, and in other places. And the world concluded that there, has to be, there had to be some organized system devised to resettle these people, and indeed to create a legal regime to deal with refugees in the future. As you probably know, the United Nations was founded in 1945, and the primary purpose of the United Nations then and now is to offset international aggression. Okay, to try to prevent war. But at the very beginning, the founders of uh, the UN, uh, primarily through the prompting of religious organizations, I might say, felt that there had to be part of the UN program the protection of the human rights of individuals as well. And so one of the early projects of the UN through the Economic and Social Council was to create a universal declaration of human rights that took about two years uh, to draft 
draft and to finally to be adopted on December 10th, 1948 uh, by the then voting members of the UN. And there were only 48, uh, 56 countries who were member states at that point. Today we have 193. Uh, but some of you may know that the chair of the drafting committee for the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was again Eleanor Roosevelt. And it was, she said it in one of her biographical reflections that being the chairperson of the drafting committee of the Universal Declaration was her proudest achievement. She was more uh, proud of that achievement than anything else. Now, the Universal Declaration, which is not international law, but has a very powerful moral role as setting out norms for human rights, has 30 articles that basically outline what your human rights are and my human rights are. Article 14 says explicitly, quote, everyone has the right to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution, period. Now that doesn't say very much, and, uh, but the UDHR, I should say, was the, the first um, document in what is an expanding family of human rights documents. There are now more than 200 of them that define indeed uh, protections for wider and wider circles of people, including indigenous people, including people with disabilities, uh, minorities, uh, people who are religiously, religious minorities, people who are victims of racial discrimination, women, children, and so on and so forth. In 1951, still in the sort of with World War II, the effects of World War II still profoundly felt, the nations of the world got together and they drafted an international law known as the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees, which was an effort to take Article 14 uh, in the Universal Declaration and give it more substance and create, as I said, a regime for dealing with people who were displaced, who were fleeing persecution, and so forth, as a result of, specifically, of World War II. Uh, prior, as I'm implying, prior to the convention, there was no such framework. And people might recall uh, in uh, World War II uh, history that uh, the story of the St. Louis, okay, that's very well known, which was a ship uh, with over 900 passengers fleeing uh, Nazi-controlled Europe. Uh, most of the 900, almost all the passengers were Jewish uh, as refugees fleeing uh, death uh, in, in what would soon be death. I mean, the Holocaust didn't, the final solution didn't begin until 1942, but sev escaping severe persecution uh, in Nazi-held Europe. They came to the New World. The ship docked in New York. Uh, they were refused acceptance in New York, sanctuary. They then went to Cuba. They were indeed refused sanctuary there, and they, the St. Louis had no choice but to return to Europe, and a hundreds, not a majority, but several hundred of the Jewish passengers ended up uh, in Hitler's gas chambers, okay? And that, the story of the St. Louis had tremendous uh, moral resonance even, even then. Um, the 51 Convention on Refugees, which is understood to be uh, international law, which means that the countries of the world that ratify it are bound by its, uh, its articles uh, and so forth defines what a refugee is, and I think it's important, obviously you have to define what you're talking about in order to create a regime of protection. What the, um, the definition of a refugee, which appears in the first article, is the following, and it's worthwhile uh, to recite it to you. 
Uh, it's, of course, written in legalese. A refugee is, quote, a person who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of, and then it lists five reasons, five criteria you have to meet to be a refugee, for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion is outside the country of his nationality and is unable or, owing to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country, or who, not having a nationality and being outside the country of his former habitual residence as a result of such events, is unable or, owing to such fear, is unwilling to return to it. So it is somebody who has a well-founded fear of persecution, who is fleeing their country, has crossed an international border, okay, is outside their country, and meets one of those five criteria. That, in effect, is a refugee. Let me just say, it's been a long time, it's been 60 years since the ratification of the Convention on Refugees, and today many people find uh, that definition to be inadequate. For uh, one reason, which is very dramatic, is today many people who are, have a well-founded fear of persecution have not crossed international borders. They are what are known as internally displaced persons. They have not left their country. They've left their home and gone to safer areas in their country, but have not crossed an international frontier, and therefore technically do not fall under the legal protections of the convention. And that is something that many people in the human rights world feel need to be protected. The rights have to be expanded to include internally displaced persons. Now, one other point about nomenclature, and that is the difference between a refugee, so defined, and a political asylum seeker. Because the definition that I just rendered for you does cover political asylum seekers as well. What is the difference between a refugee and a political asylum seeker? Well, not much, except for the fact that a refugee is someone who is usually in a refugee camp, and his or her situation is being monitored and adopted by an international refugee relief organization, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees being the most important one, but not the only one. The International Rescue Committee uh, in the United States is one such organization. There are other groups around the world who take responsibility for refugees and determining their futures and helping to organize very often their resettlement from where they are in camps into other countries that will accept them. That's a refugee. An asylum seeker, again, meets the same criteria except he or she comes to the country to which they are fleeing on their own steam, okay? So that's, that's the difference. They come alone, okay, to flee, rather than having their cases adopted, monitored, and supervised by an international relief organization. The protocol that I just read to you, uh, the, the convention on, excuse me, the convention which I just read to you, the definition of a refugee, was basically backward looking. It was drafted in 1951 and looked only at um, refugees from World War II. In 1967, a protocol was added to the convention that abolished its time-bound character. So it applies to refugees and a political asylum seekers into the indefinite future. 
What's interesting is that the United States, which very often balks on ratifying these human rights conventions, even though many of them are drafted with the help of American international lawyers, we balk at signing on to many of them, ratifying them, because we fear giving up our sovereignty and the United States arrogantly assumes that the world has nothing to tell us about human rights, uh, we generally don't sign on. And the United States actually did not uh, ratify the Convention on Refugees, even though it abides by it. We did, in fact, ratify the protocol, which is sort of odd, which means that we sort of ratified the tail and not the dog. But indeed, the, uh, we, the United States, uh, as a matter of international law, does pledge itself in principle to abide by the strictures of the 1951 Convention on Refugees. Now, the way international law works in most countries, including the United States, is once indeed a country ratifies an international treaty uh, or pledges to abide by it, as in this case, it then has to pass, the United States then has to pass federal legislation that take the provisions of the treaty and indeed instantiate them, encode them into federal law. It took a long time, but in 1980, in the Carter administration, and Carter, despite his imperfections, was the best friend to human rights we've ever had in the White House, both prior to his administration and subsequently. Under Carter, the Senate finally did ratify what was known as the Refugee Act of 1980, which takes the provisions of the convention, tweaks them a little bit, and makes them federal law. So this is now the law of the land. By the way, the Refugee Act of 1980 was, was uh, the arch major architect for it was the late Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts. Now, I had mentioned to you, and this is a very interesting and fortuitous aside, that there were five categories, okay, that you had to, one of which you had to meet to be a bona fide refugee or asylum seeker, and they had to do, again, with religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, okay, or race, or membership in a particular social group. And you might say to yourself, I know what political opinion is, I know what race is, perhaps, I know what ethnicity is or religion, but what the hell is a particular social group? Uh, it was vague then, and it's vague now. But it's an ambiguity which is actually, in the way in which the United States tries to protect political asylum seekers, has actually had, I think, a rather fortunate outcome. And I'll give you two examples where, indeed, the ambiguities of belonging to a particular social group have been, have been interpreted uh, by the U.S. Justi Justice Department to lead to favorable outcomes. Uh, in the mid-1990s, um, there was a 19-year-old young woman from Togo by the name of Fausia Kasinja, who fled Togo and then first went to Germany and then came to the United States because she was fleeing female genital mutilation in, that was practiced by her tribe. She did not want to be an object of genital mutilation. She fled, uh, she came to the United States, she was held in a detention center not far from we, where we are in New Jersey, in the city of Elizabeth, uh, was treated rather badly, but was able to get a very clever young international lawyer uh, who argued her case. The case went all the way up to the Justice Department that has, that uh, sort of supervises then and now in part immigration 
issues, has a hand in it. And then you might, you might remember the Attorney General was Janet Reno, and I've never seen this documented, but one might conclude the fact that the Attorney General was a woman might not have been irrelevant to her ruling in this. And indeed, uh, through Janet Reno's action primarily, it was um, concluded that a woman who was potentially the victim in her homeland of general mutilation belonged to a particular social group. That is, the class of women who were vulnerable to general mutilation. And indeed, Janet Reno handed down a, an edict to the, um, to the Immigration Services, basically saying the Immigration and Naturalization Service, that indeed that uh, Ms. Kissinger had to be granted political asylum on that basis. Well, uh, the uh, INS at that time, the Immigration Service today, is not the most efficient arm. I hope I'm not offending anybody knowing this is Washington. Not the most efficient arm of the federal government. There was a lot of dilly-dallying, and eventually we came into uh, the George Bush period and so forth, and um, we had John Ashcroft as our uh, attorney general, and he put the kibosh on that. It took years, indeed, until uh, Ms. Kissinger's case was finally uh, resolved, and indeed, she received full, her full-fledged political asylum, and subsequently, any woman fleeing genital mutilation who can make a prevailing case before the immigration authorities, indeed that they are fleeing a from a tribe that practices this and so on and so forth, can be granted political asylum in the United States on that basis. I should say, as a correlate to that, uh, female genital mutilation, female genital circumcision, it depends on your politics, which way indeed you, you know, what nomenclature you use, in effect uh, is illegal in the United States. It may not be practiced, it's against the law, but it's also a basis for political asylum. Uh, later in the Clinton administration, there was another episode of a Guatemalan woman by the name of Rodi Alvarado, who was fleeing um, uh, spousal abuse in Guatemala. And the way in which asylum provisions work, interpreted in the United States, the actor that is persecuting you does not necessarily have to be a government. It can be a non-governmental or a private actor, provided that your government has no interest in or is not capable of affording you protection, <laughs> okay? Perhaps the classic example of a non-state actor, uh, which has generated asylum cases, is the FARC, the guerrilla group in Colombia, that at one time controlled one-third of the country. If you were being persecuted by the FARC and you could not be protected by the Colombian government, which was generally the case, because the FARC was a a very powerful but private entity, and you fled to the United States, you could make your asylum claim on that ground. Now, Rodi Alvarado was the victim of her husband's abuse, and we're not talking about spousal abuse light. We're talking about, you know, spousal abuse, severe battery, not on one occasion, but multiple occasions. I think it's fair to say that the Guatemalan, the Guatemalan government is not particularly interested in this problem, uh, nor was it capable of affording protection to women who were victims of spousal abuse. Ms. Alvarado fled to the United States. Again, her case had originally received a fair review 
by the Attorney General who laid down an edict that indeed a woman who is the victim of severe spousal abuse belongs to a particular social group, a class of women, a social group that deserves political asylum protection. And again, that again was gummed up for years. I think it was only, maybe Ms. Robin who's here can give, me, give us the specifics, it was only about a year or two ago that finally Ms. Alvarado's case was resolved and she indeed did receive full-fledged protection uh, in the United States, which means she could asylum, which means she cannot be deported back to Guatemala. Again, this is taking an ambiguity in the convention and expanding it for what I would argue have been beneficent purposes. Um, the convention likewise was expanded in the understanding of the international legal um, cohort to involve people who are fleeing generalized violence. In other words, if you're fleeing, from your, fleeing for your life because you're in a war zone and your life is in jeopardy, you can flee to the United States and plead for political asylum on that basis. But of course, you've got to prove your case compellingly. Okay. Now, let me talk about some legal issues beyond what I've already said with regard to asylum in the U.S. There are two tracks that a political asylum seeker can take. One is relatively benign. The other is very severe and very harsh and needs a lot of reform. Okay, the first is that if you come to the United States from another country on a legal visa, okay, and then while you are here, apply for political asylum, the way in which it's generally handled is you have a hearing with an immigration official which is not adversarial, you can be defended by a lawyer. And if you make a compelling case in the mind of this immigration official, you can win political asylum, not right there, then and there. It may take weeks or months before you get the decision back to you, but you can win political asylum that way, uh, which is, again, uh, the, the less harsh approach, okay? Since uh, the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, the Immigration and Naturalization Service has been abolished, and uh, immigration concerns, including political asylum issues, are now under the Department of what is called Immigration and Customs Enforcement, felicitously known by its acronym ICE. Okay. Uh, now, I find it interesting that here we are, let me just say in terms of broad symbolism, here we are, the United States that prides itself as being a nation of immigrants, and immigration concerns are now under homeland security. What does that say about our attitudes towards the immigrant? Okay, that in and of itself, I think, is symbolism writ, writ large. Now, since 1995, this is again during the Clinton administration, the situation has become much more difficult for a class of political asylum seekers. This was after the Oklahoma bombing and probably because of fears generated by it. I don't know if you recall, initially when the Murrah office building in Oklahoma City was bombed, the initial assumption was that these were foreign terrorists until we found out they were domestic homegrown terrorists. And Clinton, who was, I would argue, has never been a big fan of civil liberties and a defender of civil liberties, uh, changed the regs. His administration changed the regs that made it much harder for people coming, asking for political asylum, 
especially if they did not come with proper documentation. What was instituted is, is what's known as a policy of expedited removal, which means that if you are coming to the United States and you cannot get proper documentation, because after all, you can't go to your government when you're fleeing for your life, when the government is indeed the persecutor, and you somehow get yourself onto an airplane and come to an international airport and go to the immigration officer there and say, I would like political asylum, that immigration officer, without any supervision or review, can turn you around and have you deported on the next flight out. Okay, what expedited removal also involved was the mandatory detention in federal detention centers for political asylum seekers who are coming to the United States with improper documentation. Now, I should say the convention, which I just cited before, does have in one of its articles the provision that if you do not have proper documentation, indeed your country should indeed look the other way, knowing that this is an extraordinary circumstance, you know what I'm saying, which could indeed, we're in which the person in flight could not get that documentation. But today, there is mandatory detention in a detention center for anyone fleeing uh, political persecution coming here without proper documentation. The word detention is a euphemism. This is incarceration, and we have effectively criminalized this aspect of the asylum process. But the important thing to remember, this is the important fact, that these people have committed no crime. Okay, on the contrary, they are traumatized people fleeing for their lives, and in a majority of cases, and I'll talk about our own, our own um, experiences, a majority of cases, these people have been victims and survivors of torture, okay, brutalization, and we put them in prison, sometimes for months and sometimes for years. We know of cases of people detained in the Elizabeth, New Jersey Detention Center, which is the major center in the New York area, who have been there for in excess of four years, okay, waiting for their day in immigration court. Um, one of the things that makes this also difficult to deal with is not only the politics in an age of terrorism and its incumbent fears, but also these, private, these detention centers are private profit-making corporations that lose money unless all the beds are filled. So what you're up against is not merely politics, but the profit motive as well that makes it doubly difficult to try to liberalize and gain greater justice. In 2003, a marvelous doctor by the name of Alan Keller lives in New Jersey and who was the founder of one of the great human rights, small bore human rights projects in New York City. It's called the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture. Did a path-breaking study of a, psychi a psychiatric review of people who were in detention centers for prolonged periods of time, and he was able to document the, in, the uh, increase in cases of depression and severe depression brought about by prolonged detention. And there are lots of cases where people who are in um, detention who have coming here thinking that the United States is the land of freedom and a utopia that will welcome them when they're in flight and in danger. People who have given up their asylum appeals and cases have lent themselves to deportation to be sent back, feeling that it's better indeed to, to meet their fate than to languish in these detention centers, okay? Once you're in a detention center, there is no right of appeal, okay? Um, now, what happens to you 
Um, when you're in the detention center, you're there for a few weeks and an immigration officer queries you in what's known as a credible fear hearing. And uh, nobody really objects to this. Uh, we as Americans have a right to be safe from potential malefactors, and there are not many, who want to game the system. And so you have a credible fear hearing that determines basically that there's some verisimilitude to your story. Indeed, there is a war where you come from. Your tribe does practice general mutilation. There is political upheavals going on and persecution. Now, in the past, before 1995, if you passed your credible fear hearing, you were then let out. You were paroled into the community pending your day uh, in immigration court. But that's not the case any longer. You're sent back. You remain in the detention center. Um, you, the stages are as follows. Uh, once you go to an immigration court to hear your case, uh, it's an adversarial system. Many of the judges are former prosecutors in, for the Department of Homeland Security. You may have an attorney and your uh, chances of getting political asylum go up exponentially if you are represented by a competent lawyer. If you are without a lawyer, imagine somebody coming here who doesn't speak the language having to negotiate the laws of political asylum in front of an adversarial uh, judge, uh, adversarial courtroom situation. So having a lawyer is absolutely crucial. Your chances of getting political asylum, if you have one uh, in the court, is, is close to zilch. I mean, close to, close to nothing. It's almost impossible to do. If you are denied political asylum, you have two other shots. Your case goes before what's known as the Bureau of Immigration Appeals, which is over, an overstuffed bureau here in Manhattan of only three judges who overlook the case. If you fail to get political asylum, your case then goes into the regular court system, into the federal courts of appeals. It's expensive. It may take years before your case is finally adjudicated. If you lose at that level, you're then put on an airplane and sent back to where uh, you came from. Let me just say, having been to the Elizabeth Detention Center, which is now closing, they're moving such people to a new facility in Essex County in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, it's really an awful place. It's, I don't know how many people know that area of New Jersey, but it's off the New Jersey Turnpike in the industrial section of Elizabeth between the Turnpike and the port. It's in a warehouse a warehouse converted into a maximum security prison. There are no windows except little slits at the top, even though outdoor recreation is mandated uh, by the department. There is none. Uh, the uh, residents wear prison uniform, I mean, prison garb. There is no privacy when you go to the bathroom uh, or when you change your clothes. Uh, there are 300 people who are kept there. Most of them are immigrants picked up in general sweeps, only a small percentage. We don't know how many are political asylum seekers. It's a very grim place. There are no services. And I think we make it harsh for these people because what we want to say to the rest of the world, people who are thinking of come he coming here, it's like holding up a sign and saying, don't come here. We don't want you. I mean, how we treat people in this regard creeps through the international grapevine, and people get the message that if you apply for political asylum, you come to the States, we're going to give you a very hard time. And it is a hard time. Um, let me just say, if you win political asylum, despite the problems, and there are a few others I'll mention, um, the United States tends in some ways to be generous. If you win political asylum, uh, it can be a stepping stone towards citizenship. Most countries don't offer that. Also, if you win political asylum, you get work authorization. You can look for a job. 
Uh, you get welfare benefits for a short period of while. You can qualify for Medicaid and so on and so forth. Meager benefits, but there is some effort to help people get a foothold uh, in the United States. But there are problems I've mentioned. One is mandatory detention. It's gotten a little bit better under Obama. A few more people are being paroled, asylum seekers are being paroled, but not many. Another problem, which may not seem like a problem, is that there's a one-year limit on applying for asylum. If you come here on a visa and you don't apply within a year, you're out. Okay, you're deported. Now, a year may seem like a long time, but if you're a foreigner and you don't know the law, you don't know what your rights are, a lot of people lose out in that regard. Another problem, and we ran into this in our program, is what's known as material assistance. If you have given material assistance to a defined terrorist organization, you may not win political asylum in the United States. Now, that sounds very reasonable until you think of the following scenarios. What if you're a four-year-old, 14-year-old child in Sierra Leone and you are dragooned by a revolutionary militia, okay, in, be, into being a child soldier, okay, or serving as a sex slave or a cook or a messenger for some private militia as a child? Well, you've given material support to perhaps a defined terrorist organization, which means you cannot get political asylum. That's very problematic. Very often people give support, but not through uh, their own choice. They're forced and coerced into it. It's possible that you may give, very honestly, money to a, um, a charitable organization, not knowing that if you look at the paper trail down the line, it may end up in the pockets of some terrorist group, even though your intentions were perfectly innocent. You cannot get political asylum. And those are things that uh, defense organizations are trying to change. Okay, let me move on. And in the brief time left to me, uh, I want to talk to you about our work, which is really, I think, uh, something that causes me a great deal of pride. In um, the middle of the last decade, the Bergen Society became uh, concerned about abuses that were appearing in the press uh, in the Elizabeth Detention Center that I just mentioned. And we engaged in what we often do in terms of social action, rather than sort of in a knee-jerk way, just jumping on board, we engage in self-education. And for two years, we tried to educate ourselves on the ins and outs of political uh, detention in this and the conditions in the detention center. And after education has run its course, of course, the question is, what can we do with this education in terms of some practical project? And we came up with the idea of creating what we call a sanctuary for people who uh, have gotten out of the detention center or have come here through the first route that I've talked to. These people are friendless. They may never go back to their own countries. They're away from their countrymen, away from their families. They're all alone without resources. And we said to ourselves, what can we do to play a supportive role, an intermediate role, to help these people leverage their uh, move towards uh, their assimilation uh, into American society. And recognizing that the Bergen Society this time around did not have enough resources for this rather costly and labor-intensive project, I went around organizing other congregations. I went to two of the three, the two larger Unitarian groups in the county, got their support, and we have as part of our coalition today seven houses of worship, the Ethical Society, the two Unitarian groups, an Episcopal church, a synagogue and a mosque working together, which is a neat little ecumenical uh, project 
based on human rights. And our most recent group is a Baptist church in Bergen County that's involved. We also have a few human rights groups, small groups that are concerned with uh, the detention center and engaging in visits with people who are there for prolonged detention, as well as assorted individuals who are committed to the cause. We now have our newest board member, in fact, is a former asylum seeker himself from Rwanda, who happens to be a member of the Episcopal Church and has come on our board. And what do we do? What we do is not, it's not brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It's very simple. We do whatever we can to try to support and help these people. And what makes our project unique is that we actually find in the Bergen County suburbs, imagine this, we find suburbanites with spare bedrooms, their kids are long out of the house, who are willing to accept into their homes for periods of no less than six months, unless it's a transitory purpose, sometimes up to two years willing to accept in their homes refugees, asylum seekers, from cultures uh, and countries uh, and ethnic groups and religious groups and racial people representing different racial backgrounds that are totally different from themselves and invite them into their home and our committee supports their efforts at keeping them there. And what we do is, housing is very difficult. What makes us unique is there are a lot of uh, asylum seeker protection groups, legal aid groups. There is no group, as far as I know, in the New York area that actually provides housing which is very tough to do. We find doctors who provide pro bono medical support. We've got dentists. One of our clients needed eyeglasses. We found an, an ophthalmologist who did a free eye exam. We get lawyers to help them uh, in addition to their own lawyers. We raise money if they've got legal problems, all kinds of things. I mean, we do have grassroots fundraisers and so on to do whatever we can to support these people, to leverage them towards independence. When we started, we thought we would deal with a lot of people our group is now incorporated. It's a separate uh, nonprofit uh, corporation. We um, thought we would be dealing with a lot of asylum seekers for a short period of time, but it's turned out experientially to be just the opposite. We have dealt with a few for long periods of time because we find that once we take on clients, we have a moral commitment to stick with them, to make sure they have the skills to earn a living, to be independent in the United States. To give you just quickly a smattering of the people we've dealt with, and then I want to tell you three stories to end, our, to end my talk, uh, to give you an example. Uh, one of our first clients was a young man from Egypt, 26 years old, had a degree in accounting and a certificate from Microsoft who ran afoul of the Egyptian authorities because he was an apostate from Islam. Okay, not something you read about. An apostate from Islam was beaten up by the police several times, fled to the United States, and we supported him. He is the only case that resulted in deportation that we've dealt with. He was sent back to Egypt. We kept in touch with him. He went underground, and we encouraged him to try to get to Canada, which he did. He was a very clever guy, got a visa to attend a conference for networking, uh, computer networking, and now has political asylum, is married, has several stepchildren in Canada, doing very, very well. Uh, we had a young woman from the Congo whose, fian whose fiance came from the wrong ethnic group. He was murdered as, long as well with her parents, murdered right in front of her. She escaped to a refugee camp in Zambia uh, and eventually made her way to South Africa and to Bergen County, New Jersey. We helped her, uh, and as last we knew, this was years ago, was living in Connecticut, working in a factory. We gave support to a woman from the former French Congo who was a victim of tribal violence in the French Congo. She's now living in Georgia, happily married, a mother. 
We had a young woman from Cameroon with two master's degrees, one in human rights and one in law from an African university. She led a student strike in Cameroon. The National University is part of the state. It was considered an act of insurrection. She was arrested, imprisoned, tortured, eventually made her way by night through a series of taxi cabs through the country to the American embassy, applied for a visa, came, got a job with the United Nations, ended up living alone in New Brunswick. We found out about her case, we took her in. She's doing fine. She's now going to law school in Ottawa, Canada. We had a woman, an older woman in her 40s, most of these people are young, from Kenya who got into trouble because she was organizing for economic development and also opposed to FGM. More, tribe, more patriarchal members of her tribe took offense at that. She was persecuted by them, came to the United States, won political asylum. Let me very briefly, and I've got just a few minutes, I want to tell you a little bit, um, a little bit greater length, if I may, Mary, about three of the cases that are more interesting. One was a cardiologist from the Sudan who was giving medical assistance to um, uh, Darfurian refugees, okay? Uh, the nurse that was assigned to him by the government turned out to be a government stooge and reported him to the uh, Sudanese authorities. He was then arrested, brutally tortured, made his way to the United States, and was a client of ours for two years. We supported his effort to become credentialed as a doctor. He hasn't finished it, very expensive exams. He never got political asylum in the United States because these groups that he gave assistance to, although not terrorist organizations, were militarized and therefore close enough to the margins to give uh, consideration to his case by the, IN, by the immigration services here in Washington. Uh, and they never resolved the case, but time went by and Dr. Issa uh, won what's called the green card lottery, <laughs> which enabled him to stay in the United States. He's actually working for a Darfurian relief organization and is a medical EMS uh, guy. We trained him, supported him in EMS skills in New Jersey. Second, another case was our youngest client ever and the only one who was, was not tortured. All of our clients were victims of torture, except for one. A young woman by the name of Adama came to Mississippi at the age of 17 as an exchange student from Sierra Leone. I didn't even think Sierra Leone had enough governmental substructure to create exchange students, but she graduated from a rural high school in Mississippi, was on her way back home to Sierra Leone, had to change planes at Kennedy Airport, and when she was waiting for her plane back to Africa, she had an illumination, and that would be if she were uh, to go back home, she would be an object of genital mutilation which she did not want. And so she decided not to go home, ended up with a relief organization in Branchbrook, New, Boundbrook, New Jersey, had a private immigration lawyer that they supported. They couldn't keep her. She was living with the sister of one of the social workers in the organization. They called us, we're in the grapevine, and Adama is still in our program. It's been two and a half years. She's living independently now. We had a benefactor who supported her nursing education at a local community college. She wants to be a nurse. We still, we're phasing her out of our program, but we still give her $200 a month to help pay her rent in Newark, and we're still in touch with her in terms of case management. She's doing fine. The last case is the most complicated and the one that I'm closest to because here was an entire family that lived with my wife Linda and me from February of last year to October. And I have a write-up on their case which I'd like to give those who are interested written by the lawyers 
who, who defended this individual. In May 2009, a, a woman who was married to a young man in Syria gave birth to a daughter who uh, was seriously imperiled. She had a potentially fatal heart defect. And the father, uh, I won't give you his name, we have to keep this, because Syria is a very dicey situation and the family is still potentially in danger, so we try to use pseudonyms when we talk or not reveal who they are. Uh, let's call him Mr. A. Uh, got an illegal banned pro uh, computer program. All .org sites in Syria are banned. He was able to get a banned program and found a foundation in Austin, Texas called the Heart Gift Foundation that offers uh, up to a dozen life-saving life heart surgeries for imperiled children from the third world. By the internet, was able to get his daughter Zainab uh, vetted for the program. The wife, who doesn't speak a word of English, got a visa, as did the child, came over to the United States, went to Austin, the child had the surgery. The mother then went back to Syria with the child uh, and then had to come back again a second time for remediative work and then returned again to Syria. In the meantime, the husband, Mr. A, got on the internet and started uh, very vociferously praising the United States and the Hartgift Foundation for their tremendous generosity in saving his daughter's life. Uh, the Syrian intelligence services were monitoring his uh, email activity and his e internet work, as well as cell phone calls between him and his wife when she was in Texas. And indeed, one day, Mr. A, who ran a translation service in Damascus, was arrested by the intelligence services after work, okay, brought to jail, kept in prison for 10 days, and brutally tortured. Not torture light, but brutally. The presumption of the Syrian uh, officials was that anyone who would receive a $100,000 gift from an enemy country must be doing it in exchange for military secrets. They also found out that the chief heart surgeon who worked in Texas on the child was not only Jewish, but born in Israel. Yikes, that's a severe crime in Syria. What happened was he fled uh, to Jordan to Amman, Jordan, leaving his wife, his older daughter, and another younger daughter, just a year, barely a year old, behind in Damascus. He went to Amman, Jordan, and then got news from friends that the, the intelligence services were gonna come to Jordan and remand him back to Syria and have him tried in some muckamuck security court and either execute him or put him in prison for life and torture him periodically as an example. At that point, he fled to the United States came to the U.S., was detained in the detention center, and while he was in Jordan, actually had enough wherewithal to work out the conditions of his own legal defense before he fled. I mean, this was quite, he's quite a resourceful young man. He got a hold of Human Rights First, which is the human rights organization in New York that it has the major, finds pro bono lawyers, was in the detention center. They picked up his case while he was there. For some reason, he was held only for 40 days in the detention center and went to work with some contacts he made working uh, in a bodega owned by three Yemeni guys and was staying in their apartment in the Bronx. It was then, after they couldn't keep him anymore, that his lawyer, one of his lawyers, called me, and in February of last year, Mr. A became a guest in our tiny bedroom upstairs, okay? Uh, every Monday and Sunday, uh, Mr. A would contact his wife over the internet for a telephone chat, 
claiming that he could cloak this from the intelligence services. One Sunday morning, shortly after his arrival, his wife did not answer. And he became very, very, very agitated. Uh, the next day, she still didn't answer. And he contacted, emailed some friends back in Damascus, and they confirmed his worst nightmare. His wife had been picked up by the intelligence services. Brought to jail, kept for four days, may or may not have been abused, we do not know. They had harassed her well before many times, demanding to know where her husband was. She'd always lie and say, I do not know. This time they said, she said to them, my husband is in Jordan. Okay, they then said you have 24 hours to leave the country without any due process, just expelled. She took the four and a half hour bus ride with the daughter who had the visa, leaving the younger daughter behind in Syria, went to Amman, Jordan. The father uh, was able to arrange a friend in Amman who was a wealthy businessman to take her in. I got home from a sanctuary board meeting on a Wednesday night and he says to me, doctor, he referred to me as doctor out of respect, he said, my wife Iman, is coming to the United States tomorrow. And yes, uh, arriving at Kennedy Airport at four o'clock. Sure enough, when I came home from teaching at Columbia the next evening, Thursday, there she was, a, a Muslim woman with the hijab and the whole nine yards, carrying this beautiful little child down the stairs. Our little bedroom now became overstuffed, right, with a father, a mother. They stayed with us for until last October. Um, and their lawyers, I gotta tell you, it gives lawyers a good name. He had four pro bono lawyers working assiduously to save his life. Uh, it must have been $50,000 of billable hours. It was quite extraordinary. Pro bono, a large Tony firm in New Jersey did this. By the way, these pro bono lawyers are always young women. They're never older men. This is, you know what I'm saying, gendered work, but they always love doing it because they were working on behalf of a concrete human being. Um, indeed, they worked on his case. He won political asylum. And then they um, indeed uh, worked on the case of the wife and the daughter who is here and the daughter left behind. Because if you win political asylum, your immediate family can win derivative asylum and be brought over here. And the big problem was how were we gonna get the child left behind over here, okay? She was living with the grandparents and so on. Uh, meanwhile, the mother became pregnant and is due to give birth on February 7th by cesarean. So this is really a story, okay? Finally, the lawyers working on this, and I'll just close with this because it has a happy ending so far. Uh, the lawyers were able to work, and this was their last legal challenge, to get a visa with great difficulty for the grandmother, okay, who first tried in Amman, Jordan, she was turned down, then went to Beirut, and with the help of our senator, Senator Menendez, intervening, were able to get a visa for the grandmother to transport the child. We raised the $1,700 in the airfare, in the meantime, with work authorization, Mr. A found a very low-paying job, was able to find an apartment in Hackensack, where we live, a tiny one-bedroom apartment that now has four beds in the bedroom, no room to walk, okay? And the grandmother is with them, wait, waiting to help her daughter out in terms of giving birth. The mother, in this case, had been separated from her child for 11 months, and it was my pleasure two Sundays ago to go to the airport, and Kennedy Airport, pick the grandmother up, and the other daughter and bring them to home, home to Hackensack for family reunification. It was, humanistically speaking, let me end with this point, it was a transcendent moment 
It was really to help this family reunify. So now they are safe in the United States. The grandmother will go back to war-torn Syria. She has no choice, but she will go back. But they are safe here in the United States. And once again, I should say, let me just leave you with this. Our success rate, except for the young man who was deported at the beginning, our success rate in terms of help leveraging these traumatized people who are in tremendous need, our success rate is 100%. Every single person we have worked with has been able to move towards independence in the United States. And you know what, friends? It's something you can do, too.